And, you know, as we talk about that idea that, that Jesus comes and conquers fear, uh, today we're starting something brand new here at Ridgepoint Church, our whole structure. Everything about this morning is going to be a little bit different because one of the things that I've seen, one of the things that God has been on, had on my heart for some time is this idea that the teaching that Jesus has really about how we're supposed to love the people around us revolutionizes everything that we're seeing in our culture today. You see, if we look at this idea of, of how to neighbor, the teaching that Jesus has in some ways wasn't unfamiliar from everything that religious people had encountered for thousands of years when he came on the earth. You see, if we flip through the Old Testament, there's command after command that we're supposed to love our neighbor. Like that wasn't unfamiliar to everybody that he was encountering. What was unfamiliar was when he started to approach individuals who didn't necessarily look, talk, act, or think like him and say, but these are the very same people that we're supposed to love. See, before then it seemed like the, the perception was we're supposed to love our neighbor as long as our neighbor looks like us and thinks like us and talks like us. But Jesus opens that up and says, I want to begin an entirely new kingdom and the currency of that kingdom is love. Like this is the main teaching. And so when Jesus comes and, and he summarizes the Ten Commands, the Ten Commandments, he says, here's the summary of the Ten Commandments. Two things, love God with everything that you have and love your neighbor as yourself. And even that wasn't all that unfamiliar. In fact, we're about to encounter a, a story that Jesus gets into where there's a teacher of the law that comes and he already has that understanding. In fact, if we open up our Bibles to, to the book of Luke chapter 10, it says this in verse 25, behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Now this lawyer, this, this person who was an expert in the Jewish law, he comes and he says, I want to put Jesus to the test. He isn't asking questions for, for his benefit. He says, I want to test him on some of these things. And he says to him, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, what is, how do I have eternal life? And Jesus responds to him and says, what is written in the law? He says, you're an expert in the law. How do you read it according to the law? Now, the guy had one of two ways of responding. He could either respond and recite all of the Old Testament law, which would have taken him about a week. Or he could have come and did exactly what he did and what Jesus did as well. He says, okay, verse 27 says, he answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, with all your mind, and, and this is the expert of the law, and he says, and I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself. So it seems like for just a minute, this expert in law, that he gets it. Like, okay, that's it. And in fact, Jesus agrees with him. Verse 28 says, he said to him, you've answered this correctly. Do this and you will live. If you do those two things, you're going to have eternal life. But the expert in the law knew that what Jesus was teaching was groundbreaking. And the next verse begins a dialogue that changes the tone of what it means to love our neighbor. It says this, verse 29, but he, this expert of the law, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He says, Jesus, like, like yeah, I get what the teaching is, but who do you find as my neighbor? And, and Jesus then uses that to jump into the story, the parable of the Good Samaritan. 
And he says, I'm going to change your definition of what it means to be a neighbor. You see, prior to this, they kind of had this idea that our neighbor is someone who, if, if we scratch their back, they can scratch ours. I'm going to love people who are, are my family because they're going to reciprocate the love in return. But Jesus comes and says, you know what? Sometimes our neighbors don't think like us. Sometimes our neighbors don't look like us. They don't talk like us. They don't vote like us. And sometimes they don't even believe like us. But it doesn't remove this command that we're supposed to love them anyway. The command to love our neighbor is open to everybody. And the teacher of the law says, I want to justify myself because my behavior is I love people who look a lot like me and who believe a lot like me. And so Jesus, I want to justify my behavior. So he asked this question, well, then who is my neighbor in an effort to justify himself? My fear right now is that we, especially within the American Christian culture, we have a tendency to want to justify ourselves. And so we choose to love and, and to agree with people who, who look like us and talk like us and think like us and, and vote like us and, and believe like us. And there's this divisiveness that is happening in our country right now where we hit on some particular topics that are really important and essential. And I'm not saying that there's an easy answer to any of these discussions. But what's happening in this political climate that we have is if I don't agree with you, the natural tendency is to think that we are enemies, that we're against each other. And there's not an open ability for us to have a discussion about these particular topics because if we don't agree on some of these things, then love isn't even part of the equation. And Jesus says we're supposed to love regardless of those things. And to, so today we're going to do something that's entirely different because my fear is that what each side is doing when there's this political divide, what each side is doing in an effort to justify themselves, they're figuring out where do I fall politically? Where do I fall when it comes to some of these bigger ideas that seem to divide our country? Let me figure out where, where, my, where my party resides. Let me figure out what they're saying. And now let me go find a couple of verses in the Bible. And by the way, both sides are doing this. It's called proof texting. Let me figure out what I believe, and now let me go find a verse that justifies, which is what this guy's trying to do. Let me go find a verse that justifies where I fall. And in an effort, the world's looking at it, and they're saying, I'm frustrated by the church. And there's times I understand that. But the more frustrated we become with the kind of the church response to some of these topics, the more enamored we become with Jesus. Because Jesus often zigged when people expected him to zag. And so today we're going to begin a four-week discussion that I think is going to be, uh, if, if, if we do this right, it could be groundbreaking not just for our church, but our community to say we have to have a dialogue. So over the next four weeks, a lot of this is going to look like a dialogue. And we're going to tackle some of these topics because I believe it can not just revolutionize our church, but if we do it right, it could change our community. And so we're going to talk about four topics. Today we're going to talk about embracing orphans. Next week we're going to be talking about reaching the nations. The following week we're going to talk about the, the racial division and how we bring about racial reconciliation. And the final week we're going to talk about empowering the poor. But today we begin the discussion on how to neighbor. All right, so today is a little bit different. Obviously, we have a panel. Some of the faces you recognize, some uh, that you might not. But, but we're talking today about this idea about embracing 
orphans. And, and here's the thing. We've talked about this. Normally about uh, November, we have a kind of National Adoption Month. We talk about some of these topics. We bring in some experts from outside uh, that are involved in the foster care industry. Here's the issue. There are 18,000, between 18 and 19,000 children in the foster care system in the state of Florida. And, and a lot of times we think, well, unless we're open to being a foster parent or an adoptive parent, which we'll talk about that a little bit this morning, but unless we're open to that, we don't really find out where we can fit in. We know there's a scriptural charge for us to be involved. We don't know what that looks like. So today we've invited some different perspectives on this. Uh, over on my right side, we have a couple people I want you to help me welcome. First of all, we have Denise Kotchikis, who's a member of Ridgepoint Church and who's a guardian ad litem. Go ahead and give it up for Denise. Uh, and then next to Denise, a uh, person I've known a long time, uh, MB McNeil is also part of the Guardian Ad Litem uh, program. She's been in it a little bit longer, so she'll share her story as well. Welcome, MB. And then over on my left, uh, most of you will know James and Danielle Brown. Uh, James and Danielle have been friends almost since we've been here. Uh, and about the same time we were going through the process, a little bit before we went through adopting Zach, uh, they were adopting their daughter, Lily, so they're going to share their story as well this morning. So welcome, James and Danielle. <clears throat> uh, so obviously we're talking about this idea of, of what do we do. There are between eighteen and 19,000 children in the foster care program, and, and the issue is, is complex. We were talking about this earlier. The issue isn't an easy issue, um, but yet the church is called to respond. So I want you guys to share. We're going to begin talking about the Guardian program, but, but talk a little bit, Denise, Denise. I think a lot of people are at least familiar with the term Guardian Ad Litem, but unless they've had an experience in the system, they probably have no idea what it is that you do. So share a little bit about what the Guardian Ad Litem program is all about. Well, the Guardian Ad Litem program, really the term for the child um, comes to mind. That's the simplest way to explain it, that literally what we do is everything is about the child. Uh, there's so many moving, working parts in the court system and in the foster care system, DCF and different ones, and we're all volunteer basis, so we basically go out the ones who are paid have their specific duties that they have to do. And, of course, as we know, there are so many children in the system, and it's very overwhelming. So the volunteer program is set up so that we can, be, we can go out there, we can go into the homes and visit the children, and we get to connect with them one-on-one, -on -one, connect with the caregiver. Um, and it's very simple, really. We, we need to go once a month and go into the home and just make sure uh, – we feel that environment, we, what, they're, what the child is living in, what are the siblings like that are in the home, the parents um, or the foster parents. And we get to connect with them one-on-one, -on -one and it's really an awesome thing. And then we do a report back to the court uh, that we put into a system. Um, we, we talk to the child advocacy coordinator. Uh, and basically, we just get to, to be that connection that, that tells the court, here's what's going on. And... Uh, for a very busy system who has a lot going on, for us to be able to go in there and do that and put that report back to them, it's just, it's just a wonderful thing. Um, and we need more guardian ad litem <laughs> volunteers. So if you can, literally, it's a wonderful experience, and you get to be there for the child. And it's incredible to, to think about that there are 18,000 children in the system. Uh, there are roughly right now 11,000 people that volunteer as guardian ad litems. And, and literally, they're there simply as volunteers saying, we want to be there for the good of the child. Uh, MB, Denise shared a little bit about that, that there are a lot of people that are involved in the system from uh, everything from the biological parents who the children have been removed for some reason to foster parents to adoptive parents to caseworkers to judges. 
What is it that makes what you do so unique? Well, first of all, we're completely volunteer, as Denise said. And so uh, when we attend these meetings and so forth, we're not part of the paid case managers or attorneys, um, all the different people that might be there or even in court. There's a lot of different people there um, regarding the cases, but we are strictly volunteers, and our only purpose is just to, as Denise said, watch out for the child and then to speak for the child, to let the judge know what does this child need, and we're completely unbiased uh, with regards to the foster parents or the birth parents or the attorneys. And it, it's uh, a great opportunity just to speak for the child. Mm -hmm. And it's really powerful. We had a chance when we adopted our, our older children. They had the caseworkers and all that stuff. And they're hired and they have a specific function. But, but they're trying to figure out, according to the legal system, what has to take place. Uh, we were assigned early on a guardian ad litem, and she and her husband would come out frequently and... The, the power that the guardian ad litem has to be involved and just to love on the kids and ultimately to answer to the judges as to what's really in the best interest is a powerful thing. So the work you guys do is, is incredible. So Denise, explain a little bit, because I wasn't even familiar with this. I, I knew our experience, but um, when, when a child enters into the foster care system, it's a little bit different than their experience, whereas a private adoption or when we adopted our, our youngest son. Um, but a child is actually in the foster care system are they right away assigned a guardian ad litem? How does that process work? Does every child in the foster care system uh, warrant having a guardian ad litem? Yes, yeah, so every child that comes into the system is assigned a guardian ad litem. Again, as JJ said, though, with about 19,000 kids in the program and 11,000 volunteers, obviously the math doesn't add up. So um, volunteers will end up taking on multiple cases or... Uh, if there isn't a volunteer to be assigned, of course, then someone in the, like the DCF program, whatever, has to try to fit that into their already very large caseload and go see the child. So that's why the, the guardian ad litem program is, is really a wonderful thing. And we are given a lot of weight in court when we go up and we're standing there and there's the attorney and the, uh, the child care advocate and all the different people are up there. The guardian ad litem goes to court and it is there too. And the judge always asks what we think because it's given a lot of weight the fact that we're going into the home and the other workers really may not have the time to do so um, and we get to see like I said the siblings visit or just everything that goes on the, the dynamics of the house that the court can't see so we get to see that and um, and then when we go into court they really do uh, value our opinion um, and again we don't have to make the tough calls we just tell what's going on in the home, and the judge takes it from there. But, yes, everyone is supposed to be assigned a guardian ad litem, and uh, we you know, just may not be quite enough to go around, but yes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and that's such a, a good thing, and the, and the weight that you guys carry when you have those discussions is, is a powerful thing, and, and we experience that firsthand. Um, so, so, MB, talk a little bit, because I want to know the nuts and bolts. Like, what does it look like? You've been at this for seven years. Uh -huh. So what does the process look like when, when you're assigned a child? How does all of that work? Okay, let me, let me say first, JJ, if, if you want or if you're interested in being a guardian ad litem, uh, they do put you through some classes so that you learn the basics of the system and, you know, what is the DCF and what are the case managers, so on and so forth. So you do have some training, which That's is good. very... They're, they're not just throwing you out there saying, <laughs> yeah. hey, go do this. <laughs> yeah. So it is very helpful. Uh, and there's a, a tremendous support system in the 
guardian ad litem department uh, with the full-time staff and the attorneys at the guardian ad litem office uh, that are always there to help the volunteer guardian ad litems if you don't know how to handle a situation. So we have a tremendous support uh, group. But once you get a case, then um, your uh, first job is to, of course, go and meet your child, uh, whether they're living in the foster care or perhaps a group home. Uh, go and meet the child, begin to establish that rapport with the child, and then uh, the other adults that are connected with the case, whether it be birth parents, if they're still in the picture, uh, foster parents, perhaps a grandparent is involved with the child, really just to familiarize yourself with uh, the whole case so that you can understand uh, as much as possible what is really going on in this child's life. And a lot of times it's very complicated mm -hmm. and very ugly, honestly, you know. So um, you just have to stay objective and listen and try to understand what this child has been through and what they're currently dealing with. Okay, so and, and you're and let me follow up with that a little bit. But so so you're with that child until the case is completed. It could result in them going back home or being adopted or whatever that looks like. But then so so you've developed a rapport. How long have you been in your current case that you're in right now? The current case that I'm on right now, I've been with it four years. Uh, the goal at the DCF is to resolve the cases within one year. And so obviously this case is really spilled over. When it first started, there were four children involved, two half-siblings and then two other children that weren't really related. It's very complicated. But anyway, the one child that is still left in this case um, is the oldest child, and she just aged out of the system. She just turned 18, and uh, as you can well imagine, we are very close mm -hmm. uh, because I've been with her for four years. She's been in four different group homes and um, unfortunately, you know, five different high schools. It's been a very tough situation. Um, but the good news is the state of Florida uh, has really uh, changed a lot of the, the laws and there are a lot of services in place now for the foster kids that age out. Uh, she has her college available and uh, stipends to help her through college. And so it's uh, very good to encourage her now to stay in this extended foster care system for her own benefit. So what does it look like when that case finishes? Are you able to keep contact with them or what does that look like? Okay, go ahead. Uh, yes, you are allowed to keep contact with them. Of course, coordinating with the or whoever the child went back to, if the child went back to the parents or if the child is still with the caregiver, you can stay involved. Um, it's really a, a, a personal situation, and, of course, you have to get permission with mm -hmm. the family sure. they're with. Um, but um, the current case I have right now is a little teeny one. She's uh, started a year ago, so I've been on it about a year, and she is uh, two, she just turned two. So it's, a, it's very different. I've also had, like, middle school age, too, though, and, like, six and seven. It's very different to see how the different ages respond. Um, the young ones, of course, being young, more resilient, they take it a lot easier. Um, mine's in a wonderful home right now. But some of the middle schoolers, and especially, you know, Mary's worked with the, the teens. It's, it's 
far more difficult. If you think about it, they've been dealing with this their whole life, and they just they just need someone to love them. Mm -hmm. They just need love, and that's it. Basically, however you provide it, that's all they need. Yeah, so. that lack of stability is really challenging. Mm -hmm. So tell me, what was it that first kind of spurred your guys' heart to say, this is something that I want to be a part of? Well, for me, I had gone into the courthouse. I can't remember what I went in to take care of that day, but I saw a little girl crying outside of a courtroom, and I was talking to someone, and I asked someone, and they told me that it was a court case and that they were going in to decide custody and things like that. And there were a couple of people standing with her, and one that I noticed was really comforting her was they told me that was a guardian ad litem. And I became interested in it at that point, and I, I knew that uh, when I was able to, I wanted to, to start doing that. So, Okay. Sure, go ahead. Um, probably like some of you guys, we, I was with uh, my husband at the movies one night, and we saw one of those public service announcements uh, for guarding ad litem. And you know how the Holy Spirit just puts something on your heart, and he won't let you forget about it. So I just became interested in it, and then I started noticing things in the newspaper that mentioned guardian ad litem, and mm. I just felt like the Lord wanted me to look into it. So I've been... It's been one of the most rewarding experiences of my life and, um, you know, just uh, challenging as far as learning things and learning about the system. It's so frustrating at times, but just to be there for the child, to give them a hug is tremendously rewarding. Mm -hmm. So what about, final question for both of you, but is, is there a time that you could point to to say this happened and this is exactly why got me at posi in, in position to be a guardian ad litem. Well, actually, it was that, the, what I just mentioned, sure. seeing the, the little girl cry, and then once getting into it, just finding out more about how it works. And um, I just knew as soon as I got the first case, you feel, when you get the first case, you might feel a little weird, but <laughs> I mean, until you, you really get in and know what's going on. But as soon as you do, you just, you know, you feel like you're able to make a difference. Sure. And that was it. Uh, when JJ asked me this question over the phone, uh, I, I sort of laughed and told him <laughs> that uh, it may sound weird, but more than once uh, I have prayed, not with the child, but uh, to myself, that the um, birth parent would go back to jail uh, just so <laughs> that the child would be safe. And it, it sounds weird to say that, but, um, you know, when you're a guardian ad litem, you want the child protected uh, more than anything. And uh, the Lord answered that prayer <laughs> a couple of times and actually sent the birth parent back to jail. And I was very thankful that the child was going to be safe uh, away from that dangerous birth parent. Mm -hmm. What about and and that's uh, and be hold on hold on the microphone one more because you and, and saying in that same conversation you also mentioned that there's some parameters that you're not allowed necessarily to share faith yeah, right. unless the child right. engages with you. So you had a story about that. Can you share yeah. that story? Yeah, the the case I'm currently on. Um, this child uh, went into a home about 18 months ago, and the people. Um, said that they were going to adopt her. And uh, unfortunately, the adoption failed. Um, but even in that heartbreak, um, 
these people were believers, and this girl, this child, uh, became a believer while she lived at their home those six or seven weeks. And so I was very thankful for that. It was a terrible experience for her to go through with this failed adoption, but yet the Lord used it um, that she is now a believer, and we can now pray together because as a guardian ad litem, you can't it's just like a school teacher and so forth. You can't really uh, try to uh, talk to the child about faith unless they bring it up. And so now it's a wonderful thing that I can pray with this girl and we talk openly about how the Lord is using all these different circumstances in her painful life uh, for his good. Sure. And it says over in the book of Deuteronomy, it says this in Deuteronomy ten eighteen. That God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. So thank you guys so much for what you do in the Guardian of Latin program. If you have any questions about this, they're going to be hanging out afterwards. You can go ahead and... But I want to transition the conversation a little bit to, to my left, to your right, and, and talk to James and Danielle about uh, their journey. So tell me a little about your journey and how Lily became around. So when James was in high school, he was diagnosed with with cancer uh, through his life-saving chemo treatments, we are not able to have children of our own um, biologically. Uh, so we, um, we knew this all along. James and I have been together since we've both been in high school. So our, uh, we never really, being that young, you never really think about how you're gonna have children later in life. So once we uh, got married and settled in our careers. Um, we started exploring several different things and nothing was settling with us. <laughs> so one afternoon, and during that time, obviously, I was upset that I wouldn't bear my own child in a TV show which I think was the Holy Spirit behind it, smacked me in the face, basically, <laughs> and said, do you want a pregnancy or do you want a family? Wow. So since then, we, um, we went through the adoption process. We did research. We, we found Catholic charities um, out of Lakeland, and we went through orientation and... From the day that we did orientation to the day that Lily was born was nine months. Which, by the way, is incredibly fast. <laughs> like, that, that, that normally does not happen. Um, so, uh, obviously, you know, it's, it's always fun for the family to be part of the celebration. Uh, you know, normally the, both the courts and families do a great job of celebrating the finalization of adoption, regardless of, and realize there's... There's two different perspectives here. What they're talking about is mostly a public adoption that happens through the system. What you guys went through was, was a private adoption that happened through Catholic charities. But either way, there's a celebration that, that's at the end. Now, Lily, you had from the time she was born, and, and so she grew up without some of these same experiences. But even in that, as much as there's a celebration at the end, Danielle, you're already alluding to, there's some dark moments that, that leave doubts and questions. So whoever wants to talk about what the what that dark season looked like? Um, yeah, some of the dark moments, just for me, it, 
I thought she would be the protector. You know, she was a protector. We were both the protector. But, mm -hmm. like, from the minute I got to take this child home from the hospital, there's a 90-day period to where somebody can come get this kid out of my house. And for three months, no Facebook pictures. Yeah. No social media. Um, until the judge signed that piece of paper. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there are so many, uh, on both sides of, of this, there are so many difficult challenges to this and that's why it's not an easy solution to come up in church and say hey everybody go do this because everyone's story is different and it's easy to look at the finished product yeah. and say man look at this beautiful family this is how it's supposed to look and and catholic charities they they work with 20 something 30 something counties in the state so they don't try to pair someone from arbindale with somebody in winter haven they want you know they try to pair you with someone a couple counties away right Lily's biological mother lives in Winter Haven, which, and it was just, it was all God the whole time. They have a program they accept 10 families a year in, um, and when a birth mother comes in and, you know, this is what she wants to do, she wants to make an adoption plan for her child, they show her these 10 folders. Mm -hmm. We got the phone call in January that we wasn't accepted into that program, it was going to be another year. Okay, cool, we'll live our life, same thing. I'm working one day, get a phone call. Hey, guess what? She didn't like any of those 10 people. They're all too old. So we showed them y'all's, and she wants to meet y'all in two days. Is that yeah. okay? And she was eight months pregnant at the time when we met Lily's biological mother. And we met her at Arbindale Chili's. Like, the booth we sat in to meet her, even when we go there today, like, we, they always take us to that booth every time. It's just weird. So, but, so tell me what that next month is like then, yeah, because so, you weren't expecting that so, so quickly. Yeah, we didn't want to tell family. We didn't. The only people we had to tell was our family group mm -hmm. here at church, and you know it was you know everybody was so inviting about it. We had to tell somebody. You, know, you're just going, <laughs> you don't want to tell your parents because you, you don't want to paint the nursery. You don't want to buy a diaper. You don't do anything yeah. until you bring the kid home. Right. Right. And um, so we'd go to family group every week with our update, and everybody was just so excited, you know. And there was one in particular person in family group that prayed every week. Like, you know, we all prayed for different things every week. Mm -hmm. There's one person, <laughs> we, every time he would, you know, we pray that next week something, it would happen. Like, it was, it was the weirdest and thing And we'd ever. go around, it just happened. Yeah, every yeah, it year. just, every week, every, week, every right. week there was an update, there was something else going on, mm -hmm. and um, a lot of stuff got rushed and pushed, and um, Lily was actually born two weeks early. We didn't have the crib put together. We didn't have anything done. <laughs> sure. So, um, but yeah, the, just... The, the dark side of it, like I said, you, you don't realize, you know, you bring that kid home, that's, that's my daughter. But now the 90-day 90 90 waiting period, I mean, that was the most stressful, every knock on the door, every, every you know what I mean? You, right. you have no clue because it, it just takes one family member to attest it. And mm -hmm. like, like they were saying, you know, we're all from the same area. All they have to do is go to the Bartow Courthouse. They mm -hmm. could take a bus. They could take right. whatever they need. Now it could be a nightmare. Definitely. Uh, so talk, obviously, you guys, because it was a private adoption, you didn't have guardian ad litems, but there's still numerous people that are part of the process. So talk about from a private adoption perspective, what does that process look like? Who's all involved in that? Um, well, through the agency, we have an adoption counselor. Her name was Lisa, is Lisa. Um, she's amazing. She walks you through every step. 
we have her to support us. We had our family group to support us. And then once we told our family, we had our family support. Um, they knew that we, our family knew that we were in the adoption process anyways, but we just had to withhold a little information for a while from them to protect them. Um, but definitely, I, I feel like Lisa is, is, was instrumental in our adoption process. And that's huge. I think a lot of people either, you know, being guardians or being adoptive parents or foster parents, whatever that looks like, they're afraid, like, am I going to be out there on my own and, and no one's there to support me? And, and yet they have numerous uh, levels of support from, you know, providing counseling to providing uh, a lot of those, if you go through public adoption, even providing some of those financial needs along the way uh, that can help you get there. So now I'm curious about this because uh, we've encountered this as well, but Lily's a little bit darker complexion than, than you guys are. Uh, so, so talk about, do you ever have any, like, anything insensitive happen because of that or any funny stories that might, might um, happen? Nothing really insensitive. The funny stories, they, they happen all the time. We were at a, the first time it happened, she was a baby. We were at a wedding. And um, the young guy, I mean, bless his heart, he'd come up and, uh, he's looking at Lily, she's cute, and he's talking to us, and I've known him for a little while, and he really didn't know any of the backstory, and he goes, I'm just trying to figure out who she looks like, and I'm like, well, me, I'm a little darker than she, <laughs> you know? and uh, then, you know, we told him, and he goes, you know, we don't even think about that, and, and that's, that's kind of the, that's the fun part, we've had a waiter at a restaurant we used to go to a lot, you know, she come up to Danielle while I was in the restroom, and Oh, he's such a good guy for taking care of your kids. Like, you know, like, people, you know, people don't you stop and think for a minute. You know, it's always the mom that gets the bad yeah. rap because. Of that. Yeah, yeah, and the, I mean, not just funny stories. My favorite stories of JJ's son, Jaheed. Yeah. Like, someone, yeah. are y'all adopted? He'll go, I'm adopted. And I mean, he, he looks nothing like he's JJ. Much darker. Yeah. And, and we'll we'll talk, and, and so we'll say something about the adoption, and he's like. I'm adopted, <laughs> and it just blows everyone's mind. Yeah. That, that and Jaheed loves to all the time like shock people because he'll he'll say, uh, "Yeah, I was born when my mom was still in high school," and, and all this stuff. And everyone's <laughs> looking at Beth like, what, like, "What happened?" So uh, it, it, there's you know there's some funny stories. There's yeah. also some people can be really sensitive when Absolutely. someone comes up and says, "Well, but do you have any children of your own?" Or, yeah, do, you, or yeah. do you? I get this sometimes. Do you have any real children? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're fake. Like <laughs> yeah, they're, they're not yeah. actually breathing over here. They're just, <laughs> Uh, so that can be challenging. Uh, so, so final question. Um, you know, people are at different spots. Not everyone's called to adopt. Uh, but there might be some people that are sitting there right now saying, I don't know, that seems like a lot. Like, what, what's a word you'd give to them to say, hey, if, if that's where you're at, you're on the fence, at least consider this. Or Yeah, like Catholic Charities has a couple times a year, they have like an orientation you just go and sit in a little room, and she talks about it. There'll be 20 or 30 people maybe, mm -hmm. and they just kind of tell you about the adoption process, what you can look forward to. I mean, it's not as easy as just signing a piece of paper. Okay, now it's time. You know, mm -hmm. We'll call you yeah. when the kid's available. Yeah. I mean, we, we've had to do uh, FBI background checks twice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, we've had to do HIV testing, physicals, just crazy amount of stuff. Just, mm -hmm. you know, you get a checklist and just start checking stuff off. Yeah. And I mean, they they want you to write how you were raised. They want to, they just want to make mm -hmm. sure you're not just competent, but right. you're you're able to to raise mm -hmm. this child. Right. Um, and and they teach you a little bit more. They call it that was what I took away from a lot of the classes, like the adoption language. Mm -hmm. Nobody's giving up their kid. Like mm -hmm. that that that's got to stop. You know, that's mm -hmm. that's what. Yeah, it, oh, how rare. could she give her kids right, up? Right. 
she made an adopted plan for Lily. That mm-hmm. was like the most responsible thing she could have ever done. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Lily could have easily just went into the foster care system mm-hmm. and yeah. just like that, you know, yeah. so. It, the, it, yeah, the selflessness of some of these moms who know, like, you know, we encountered it where biological mom for Zach knew she couldn't keep him. Right. The easy route would have been, it's legal, I can have an abortion and, and yeah. not go through any of this. Mm-hmm. It's a very selfless choice at that point to say, I'm going to go through with this pregnancy knowing I can't keep the child. Like, they're, as hard as it is, they're heroes to be able to do that. Right. One thing that I would say if you were on the fence about it is definitely pray. Um, and if you do get involved in an adoption plan or adoption process, patience. Patience is yeah, key. Yeah. Um, our first round with Lily, um, I was very anxious. I would call Lisa a couple times a month. Have you heard anything? Can you tell me anything? She knew about Lily's birth mother a two or three months before she ever told us about it. She made her, you know think things through, pray about it, make her decision that way. Um, I was very anxious through the whole thing, like, when are we going to get her? When are we going to get her? But now we are in the adoption process again. We've been adoption ready since January, and I have heard from Lisa twice. But this time through, I have such a peace about it because mm. I know it's going to happen in God's timing. And <laughs> Lily knows. Lily knows she's adopted. We celebrate her adoption day, um, and so she knows that we're going to adopt another baby. We're hoping to adopt another baby, and so she prays, you know, at dinner, mm-hmm. keep our baby safe. Wow. She's heard me pray that, you know, keep our baby safe, and when it's time, we're ready for our baby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, she's so excited to wow. be a big sister. <laughs> Does she have a preference right now? Does she want a brother or sister? She used to say boy, and now she says sister. <laughs> she, I don't think she really cares. Yeah. It could be a puppy, and she yeah. would be happy. <laughs> she does want a puppy. Yeah. But, yeah. no, yeah. she's super excited about being a big sister one day. That's powerful. Thank you guys as well for joining us. Go ahead and give up the Browns as well. I want to share just two things as we wrap up. In James one twenty seven, it says this. Religion that is pure and undefiled uh, before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Like, this is our command as believers is we're not all called to adopt for sure, um, but we're all called to do something. And and it could look like something uh, formal, like guardian ad lives. It could be just being a support system for someone who's been through it. It could be, uh, I can remember being part of those those family group meetings, and, and you guys were anticipating it. Zach wasn't planned at all, and all that happened in, within the same uh, couple of months there. And, and so just being part of that process for people, being their support system, uh, providing child care when you guys want to go have a date night, like things like that are really valuable. And, and so each one of us can play a part in, in figuring out what that looks like. Uh, in the coming weeks here at Ridgepoint Church, I, I shared next week, uh, we're talking about reaching the nations. Some of you know the name Luke Osberg. Luke Osberg was a longtime part of Ridgepoint Church. Uh, he and a group of people have gone down to the Dominican Republic and started a ministry down there called Fight, where it's freeing individuals from the grasp of human trafficking. Uh, Luke is coming as part of the series. He's going to be talking next week, giving us an update. Now, here's the thing. This is especially important for the people that are out in Facebook world watching us live. It's because of the work that Luke is about to enter into. Uh, he is not allowed to have his face depicted on anything in social media. 
So next week, we'll be able to have the audio of the message, the video. We will not have any video next week. Uh, so if you want to see Luke, you've got to be here live next week. Uh, we're really excited to get an update from him and his family and, and everybody a part of Fight as to what's going on. And also to find out what that looks like for us, because on top of this being an issue, uh, there's also an issue right now in our country of what do you do about immigration and, and, and how much do different people matter. And, and even though we might have our political perspectives, ultimately at the end of the day, Jesus calls us to love everyone regardless of background. So we'll talk about that uh, next week. Then coming up, obviously, we're heading into Thanksgiving. The week after Thanksgiving, uh, we, we traditionally we do something. We don't have a regular service. We go out to Simmers Young Park, and we have a <clears throat> service outside at Simmers Young Park and have a picnic associated with that. Uh, we're praying we have some beautiful weather like we have this morning <laughs> uh, that week. It might be 95 degrees that morning. We're not sure. Uh, but we're, we're, we're changing it up a little bit this year in that we're calling it the How-To Neighbor Picnic. And we want us even right now, uh, because we believe fully that in order to be a good neighbor, sometimes we just have to be good neighbors. It's not so much what you do as, as who you are. And so we want you even right now, we'll have invite cards out soon, but we want you even right now to start thinking about some neighbors saying, hey, after Thanksgiving, you're tired of Thanksgiving leftovers, uh, come out, we're going to be grilling out at the park, and invite your, your neighbors to be a part of that picnic the Sunday after Thanksgiving. Thank you guys again for joining us. Uh, let's pray and we'll close out with uh, one final song. God, I thank you for uh, this group that's been uh, assembled. God, I thank you for uh, their heart. I thank you for their passion uh, to fulfill the command we had in, in Deuteronomy, the challenge we had in Deuteronomy, as well as the challenge we had in James to, to reach people who are uh, needing to be reached and to love people who often don't experience that love. Uh, God, I thank you for the Guardian Ed Lighten program and people who step up on a volunteer basis just to make sure that the, the needs of those specific children are met. And God, I thank you for biological parents who are strong enough to be the heroes of the story to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through the pregnancy and put my child up for adoption to make sure that child could be loved and for adoptive parents like James and Danielle. God, I thank you for everyone who's part of the system. There's so many heroes that allow us to do what we do better. As frustrated as we might become with a system, God, I'm thankful for people who step in to fulfill the role that you have for us. God, bless them. Bless us in Jesus' name. Amen.